When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. This week we have Jacob Rees-Mogg and Tristram Hunt on the Victorians. Hannah was the producer of this event. Hannah, what happened? Well, we had Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is a Conservative MP and a leading Brexiteer. And up against him was Tristram Hunt, who is a former Labour politician and currently director of the Victorian Albert Museum in London. And who was the chair of the event? It was chaired by Anne McElvoy, senior editor at The Economist and columnist on The Evening Standard. And it was about the Victorians. Why, Why are we doing this event now? Well, Jacob Rees-Mogg has published a book called The Victorians, Twelve Titans Who Forged Britain, which obviously sounded extremely interesting. People say that Jacob Rees-Mogg is the MP for the 18th century, so it was interesting to learn to hear what his vision was of the 19th century and, of course, bring it all up to date with his view of England in a post-Brexit world. Sounds fascinating. Well, we hope you enjoy the podcast. And we also have another podcast which we think our listeners would like. It's called How I Found My Voice. You can search for it on Apple podcast, Spotify, Acast, wherever you listen. This week, we interviewed Saida Wasi, the Conservative MP and first Muslim to be in a British cabinet. It's a fascinating discussion. So if you're interested in politics, we recommend that you take a listen. And now here's this week's episode. Hello, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Very pleased to be here with you and my two stellar guests tonight. So welcome to our event. It's the Victorians who made Britain and it stars two big hitters in the debate about the impact of the years that Victoria ruled between 1837 and 1901, the impact that they have on Britain now and our role in the world. This encounter is a kind of Nadal versus Federer level historical clash. So expectations are high, are they not? Our guests have been at one time on opposing sides of the political divide, but that is as nothing compared with the slings and arrows thrown in arguments about who really matters in the Victorian period. 
Jacob Rees-Mogg is Conservative MP for North East Somerset, chair of the European Research Group, and he sits on the Brexit Select Committee. He's often to be found lambasting the Prime Minister and his fellow MPs over the failure to deliver on the results of the EU referendum in 2016. A Sunday newspaper informed us this week he only takes his jacket off in the bedroom, with a picture taken with his six children, so that clearly worked. Um, he has a long interest in his jacket. This is Morgan in the front row. He has a very long interest in history. His subject as an undergraduate at Oxford and has said of the Victorians, 12 titans who forged Britain, that he wants to revive a sense of the greatness, nobility and good sense of that period. Tristram Hunt is director of the Victoria and Albert Museum here in London, so he's surrounded by some of the finest Victorian artefacts. A former Labour Education Secretary, he read history at Cambridge, and his books include Building Jerusalem, The Rise and Fall of the Victorian City, and a biography of Engels, the frock-coated communist. Oddly or otherwise, Engels didn't make Jacob's top 12, and they can fight that out in just a moment. So, Jacob, why did you write the book? What was the original thought behind it? What, setting out to do what? Why did I write it? Um, and first of all, thank you, everybody, to, for, for coming this evening, which is much appreciated. After the reviews, I wondered if anybody would come, other than <laughs> immediate, immediate members of my family who are filling the front row. So thank you all for coming. Well, I've always been interested in Queen Victoria because I share a birthday with her. So Friday is the 200th anniversary of the birth of Queen Victoria, not me, just to be accurate, and my 50th birthday. So I had an interest in Victoria, and I picked up um, Lytton Strachey's Eminent Victorians two or three years ago when people were saying to me I ought to write a book, and I read it. Um, and I thought, this is just so wrong and unfair. There are all these great people, and they're being introduced so now, a hundred years later, is time to set the record straight. One shouldn't rush into these things. They should be done when the time is ripe. And I thought the time was ripe to um, say, actually, the Victorians were amazing and incredibly self-confident and achieved an enormous amount. And they did it because of individual vim and vigour and that I thought it was time to, to talk about that, and a world that I think manages decline and doesn't bother to have too much vim and vigour. So that was the reason behind it. Tristram, vim and vigour is a counter-viewpoint to the Victorians necessary, as Jacob seems to be suggesting that we've, we've let them languish or misinterpreted them? Um, well, I think, first of all, any investigation of the Victorians and the 19th century uh, is to be welcomed. Uh, as someone who runs the Victorian Albert Museum, you're growing the market, so uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm very, very supportive of that. I think as much history and uh, discovery of the 19th century is, is, is to be welcomed. And I'm also happy, Jacob, to play my small part in what my old friend Tony Blair used to call modernisation. Um, and as you move from the 1700s into the 1800s, uh, in terms of your profile, uh, if, we can, if we can play a small part in that, then that's great. I'll just make this point to begin with. Jacob talks ag again and again about the confidence of the 19th century. And actually, th th those of us who, who, who study the Victorian period often find that what grips it above all is a sense of doubt and the fear of the decline of faith and the loss of faith, the fear about civilization, the fear about evolution, the role of, of, of Darwin, the, the 
theology of, of Thomas Carlyle. You think of the poetry of Matthew Arnold and the Sea of Faith uh, on Dover Beach. Actually, it, it was an era gripped by doubt uh, alongside these great celebrations of kind of confidence. Let's talk about the selection. Once you choose 12 names in a book from an era, you're bound to be in for trouble. Uh, and then trouble's pretty much come your way on that one, hasn't it? Because it, a lot of people feel it, that it's it's selective in a way that they don't approve of. So talk us first through your way of going at this. How did you count them in and out? It was completely arbitrary. I chose 12 people I thought would be fun to write about um, who are really important in the Victorian period. Uh, I wasn't trying to do some politically correct exercise of um, selecting people who would meet with the approval of Guardian readers, and I apologise. <laughs> I, I apologise to Guardian readers in the audience. That wasn't my objective. But when you say it's completely arbitrary, so just to give a flavour, we've got a lot of politicians, not unsurprisingly, giving your, your, your job. You have a lot of administrators, a lot of colonial administrators, which has obviously brought up the question of empire. Perhaps not a lot of culture. The standout omission there might be Dickens. But did, was that because you felt that culture doesn't really count in the same way of forging Britain as the characters you chose? I mean, actually, no. If I'd gone for culture, I'd gone for Trollope rather than Dickens, um, who I prefer. Actually, do you know, I might have cheated and had P.G. Woodhouse, who just creeps in. But I thought that having somebody who did most of his writing in the 20th, 20th century would be too much of a cheat. Um, but Trollope is amazing. And, of course, they're so incredibly commercial, writing things that are published week in, week out. And they're so wonderful to read, because at the end of each chapter, you want to find out what's going on next, uh, as you might do... Uh, watching a soap opera, say, with Dallas, do you remember who shot J.R.? And Trollope's doing much the same thing to keep people going. So I could have included Trollope, who I would have preferred rather than Dickens. He's a bit boring, don't you think? Anyway, sorry about that. Um, uh, but I, I didn't have him. I thought that actually the Daring Do ones were more exciting to write about. And the one woman, I the most of emails I had in the run up to this event, just to, to get this one out, out of the way and get both of your views on this, were about the lack of women. Now, obviously, you couldn't get around Queen Victoria, right? So well, she, I didn't want to get around Queen Victoria. She made <laughs> the terrific. Cut. She's terrific, and she made the cut. But no other woman. Now, you can argue that's arbitrary, but it, it does seem odd to only possibly have one woman when you, when you had at your possible disposal Florence Nightingale or Bronte's. Um, you could look to the pioneers of women's health care, Josephine Butler, Marie Curie... I could go on, I'm not suggesting you should have had them all, but did you think of having more women? No, I, I didn't. Um, that I thought of some individual women, and I did think of having Florence Nightingale, who I'm afraid I thought was too obvious. Everyone writes about Florence Nightingale, and even straight she was quite nice about Florence Nightingale. So what, what new was there to say, other than she's absolutely marvellous? And that's three words, and I needed about 10,000 a chapter, so it's going to be pretty difficult to find the remaining 9,997 words to keep the publisher happy. Um, but... The Victorian era, whether we like it or not, was a very masculine era. That There were no women MPs, there were no women politicians. And I expect if you look at the Dictionary of National Biography, you will find that the overwhelming entries are for men, because until the 20th century, in particular the 21st century, it has been a mainly male-run society. Now, that has changed. So if I were writing um, a book about eminent... Uh, Elizabethans, it would be a very different book. It would certainly have Margaret Thatcher in it. 
and, and so I think you've got to deal with the time you're dealing with. And if I'd evened the numbers up or anything like that, it would have been essentially bogus. It would have been pretending the Victorian era was other than it was. It was a very male era. Well, we're seated in, in, in the shadow here of um, the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson wing of University College Hospital. And I think when we think of the 19th century, there was a phenomenal contribution by great female pioneers. And whether it was uh, female medicine, um, whether it was the, the campaign for the vote and the Pankhurst in, in Manchester... Um, in this book, there's a lot about um, the importance, and we'll probably get onto this, uh, of referenda uh, within the British Constitution. But there isn't much about the fight for women to vote in those referenda. Um, and so I think the, the point about the study of the past is also its, its relevance and feel um, for the present. So I think there is a valid criticism uh, of the absence of female voices within, within this work. But what I would also um, sort of take issue with, in a sense, is um, an absence of a focus on, on ideas and the history of ideas. Because the 19th century is this great radical ferment of thinking. If we think of contemporary notions um, of understanding capitalism, of socialism, of communism vegetarianism or feminism, all of this flows out of some of the big thinkers uh, of the mid-19th century. So and who also, would you deem essential that you can then put your challenge to, to Jacob and he can tell you what well, he thinks? Well, I, I, I would have Cobden, I'd have Richard Cobden, um, who, who was the great uh, liberal thinker. Um, he was the co-author of the 1860 Cobden Chevalier Treaty between Britain and France, which reduced duties uh, between trading countries in Europe, which seemed to me quite a good idea, uh, which then had uh, far flowing uh, implications. And there's a statue not far from here at Mornington Crescent Station. Uh, and of course, out of kind of almost filial loyalty, I would have, if not Friedrich Engels, uh, who, who I wrote about, uh, Karl Marx, who, whose journey from Chalk Farm to the British Museum in Bloomsbury would have taken him again just past here. So I'd definitely have Marx, I'd have Cobden, I'd have had John Stuart Mill. But the yeah, problem got always is moment. you'd keep going. <laughs> and you'd have a woman in there? Oh, absolutely. I'd have the Pankhursts. Yeah, um, but I, I'd also have Annie Besant, actually. You, you, look, you look suddenly taken and flown away by the thought of Annie Besant. <laughs> Karl Marx, I suppose, obviously a, a, a world for you challenged. Would that cross your mind, or indeed Engels? Any of Tristram's list? I mean, I think Karl Marx has led to more disaster in the 20th century and more deaths than almost anybody else, so I didn't want to have somebody of his ilk in my book. Um, uh, John Stuart Mill is clearly a substantial figure, and Cobden is a very interesting Figure. So yes, of course, but I don't, I'm not trying to say that these are the only 12 people that you can have. I'm saying that they are 12 important and interesting people. I was also, in some cases, though by no means all cases, interested to have people who've been slightly overlooked and forgotten about, mm. and particularly in relation to Gordon, somebody whose reputation had been completely trashed 
And I thought it was more interesting to write about somebody whose reputation had fallen from extraordinary heights. Um, statues to Gordon were put up all over the empire after he died. Um, Gladstone got known as the Mog, which wasn't complimentary, even in Rees-Mogg terms. Uh, it stood for murderer of Gordon. Uh, and just gloss Gordon for us, just for the, the audience and uh, the audience indeed beyond this hall. Um, do they not all know about Gordon? Well, I suppose that's what the purpose of the book is. Well, so I think you all that's well, why you're well, here to tell it, us. Yes. Um, what is Gordon? Gordon is an extraordinary figure who um, is in the army. He goes out and fights uh, in China for the Chinese emperor. He is about the only person who goes out to China not to make money. He refuses to take money for what he does. The only reward he gets is a gold medal, which he eventually gives away to the poor. He's incredibly driven, very much um, a feeling that he is divinely appointed to do what he does. And then he, ha he has this extraordinary reputation, and so there's a popular clamour for him to go out to Khartoum, which is a completely idiotic place to send him, as everybody recognises, because he's a great uh, leader of forces. He is not a man to lead a retreat. So he goes out, basically to lead a retreat, but he has a great zeal to crack the slave trade which is going on in the Sudan and he feels he cannot do this by surrendering Khartoum and so he decides that instead of retreating he will keep Khartoum. Khartoum is besieged then for months until whenever it is January um, uh, 1885 and he dies in that heroic way that you expect um, Englishman to die, that there he is in full uniform as Governor-General at the top of the stairs, the spears come crashing into him, and the um, relieving force is not quite there, it's almost there, too late, too late to save him, in vain, in vain they tried, his life was England's glory, his death was England's pride, and everyone was furious and blamed Gladstone for not helping out earlier, including the Queen, and the Queen does the equivalent of going down to Windsor Post Office to send Gladstone a telegram saying, you've let Gordon down, he's been murdered, and it's all your fault. And, of course, everybody on the post office stations along the way reads this out and reads it to their neighbour, so everybody gets to know how cross uh, the, the, the Queen is, perhaps like Her Majesty telling Michael Gove she was in favour of Brexit, but perhaps that's not the sort of thing I should mention. Um, <laughs> Uh, 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 and, and so, allegedly, allegedly, a, a voice from the palace has just appeared <laughs> in my left ear. Um, and and that—that that is, that is Gordon. He is an absolutely heroic figure um, who believes in things and is willing to die for things. And one of the great things about so many of these Victorians is that Gordon believed that all life was of equal value. So when he's fighting in China, he believes Chinese life is of equal value to English life. And most people in England at the time don't think that. And it's a very remarkable and noble view of the world. It's one of the reasons I like him so much. So to what extent do you think this is revisionist about aspects of empire? Because there's perhaps more hostility to the idea of a British empire, more contested, in sort of in a way, kind of back in the historical news at the moment, a new generation taking apart the colonial legacy. Is that something you wanted to take on? Well, Tr Tristram may approve of this, because um, though most of the audience may not. Uh, one of the things I say about Napier is that actually his motivation is not entirely dissimilar from Tony Blair's. Napier obviously in Sindh and Tony Blair in Iraq, that he believes he is doing good and he believes that he will be helping people by having a vision of 
what in those days is called liberal imperialism, but is the um, Chicago speech of Tony Blair about how you should be interventionist. And Napier feels that you can remove wicked rulers and make people's lives better. Actually, for Napier, it often goes wrong. But his intention is incredibly noble. And again, uh, when he's in sin, what does he do? He stops infanticide. He stops widows being um, burnt. He stops um, wives being killed by their husbands when they feel like it, which was what was going on in sin before he got there. But to do so, he removes a set of rulers who obviously don't like it and for which he gets criticised. He fights wars to do it, in which people obviously uh, get get killed. And he sets up a system of landlords that is very unfair and doesn't in the end work. But actually, his intention, his moral drive, is quite extraordinary and very powerful. And you do see this, I think, in modern politics. And I think it is, Let's find it, out what it is the defence of Tony Blair. <laughs> um, I mean, I... Th- I there's absolutely no doubt that the, the, the motivation for, for, for many imperial and colonial actors in, in the 19th century was a sense of civilising, um, that there was a superior civilization in the West um, and a backward civilization in large parts of the rest of the world. And the impact of Darwin... Um, in the mid-19th century was to racialise this thinking. So you would then have a hierarchy of racial thinking which was put on top uh, of this uh, imperial uh, system. And I think one can, one can obviously point to, to acts of uh, intervention which might be deemed progressive. And I don't think we should sort of think of the empire simply in good or bad terms or have a sort of uh, a ledger uh, of, of, of its history because it was extraordinarily complicated and elements of it are still with us now. But what I suppose we don't have in this book is the other side of the story that the same kind of missionary zeal, um, both ideological and, and in, in some forms Christian, also produced the extraordinary number of deaths in Bengal uh, and the rest of India in the 1870s when a localised famine was transformed because of decisions taken by colonial administrators into the deaths of hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And so when you think about these Interventions around Suti or Thuggy or, uh, you know, uh, the rights of, of, of women in certain communities. Alongside that are acts of extraordinary colonial violence and brutality, um, which we're still living with the consequences of today. Did you gloss over those, those aspects of empire Tristan was alluding to there, and that seems to be one of the charges raised against them. Well, the individuals I was writing about weren't the people doing those things, because I was writing about heroes rather than villains. But I do accept you could write a book of imperial villains. Of course you could. Well, hang on. But here's Ian Wilson, who's also written on the Victorians, yeah. uh, reviewing a book, saying there's something morally repellent about a book that can gloss over massacres and pillage on the scale perpetrated by Napier. Well, that's simply wrong. It's not true. Uh, Napier was against uh, the destruction of villages. He was against massacres. Uh, on occasions, his seniors tried to uh, encourage him to carry out massacres, and he refused. It's simply wrong. I mean, I, on, on the, the, the... We don't need I mean, to get stuck in the detail of that on, on example, Napier, but, I, but, but I, just to conclude I, but, that point, I suppose the question is always, is the balance, isn't it, of how much is the historian obliged to drop the balance sheet, you actually seem to suggest not that there isn't a sort of balance sheet of rights I don't and wrongs. Th- 
on this period? Because I, I mean, so the, so the Victoria and Albert Museum, um, one of our origins is in something called the East India Company Repository. So when the East India Company was conquering uh, Bengal in, beginning in the 1780s, 1790s, part of the act of colonialism was the act of collecting. So to, to control was also to collect, to deem what was important and unimportant. And out of that flowed a collection which would eventually come into the Victoria uh, and Albert Museum, alongside all sorts of purchases and items taken legitimately. So we have within the institution a long colonial history, which isn't all a story of blood and guts and brutality and violence. It's a complicated story of... of, of a kind of iterative relationship between art and design and craft between the countries. So empire brought that into being. But I do think that in, in this day and age, particularly as Britain thinks about its identity, its colonial history, its in, imperial history, that it is important to have an appreciation of those, those, those broader histories of the British Empire. Because... Because if you don't have that, then you do end up just with this kind of black and white, good and bad conversation. Let's pivot a bit to the, the present, and particularly looking at the role of the, the great constitutional theorist, Dicey, who you obviously have great admiration for. This remarkable man, you say, ensured that a true understanding of the Constitution is an absolute subject for romanticism, which is of continuing benefit to the nation. The British Constitution is a model that works better than those in other nations. Well, I mean, we meet uh, tonight, uh, still in the middle of the never-ending story of the aftermath of the referendum. We don't know which in European institutions we're in or out of. So whether you're Brexiteer or Remainer, what gives you the confidence that this constitution is still working? Right. I may be about the only person in the world, um, other than the great and distinguished Vernon Bogdaner, who thinks that the constitution is an, an object of romanticism, but I think we have the most beautiful constitution uh, that has been terribly perverted by two things. One is the 1972 European Communities Act, and the other of immediate effect is the 2011 Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which has led to us having the first adult parliament since 1614. Did, you, did you vote against it? Yes, the whole time. Very good. We're in the same lobby. Okay. I thought it was dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> it was a dreadful act that yeah. completely failed to understand how a constitution yeah. works. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, and, and we are suffering. Well, this is this I mean, going mean, to be. Yeah, no, you no, might just want to go to your happy place. Right, yeah. Yeah, 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 <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get them back onto things that they right. want to debate in a moment. Um, so, uh, when you stop loving each other, okay, all right, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to disagreeing in a minute. <laughs> but, but, but the. Um, I, I, actually, the first time I voted uh, against the government as a brand new MP, uh, the now Mayor of London very, very generously said to me, was I sure I was in the right lobby? Which I thought was such a kind thing to do, rather than assuming that it'd be funny to laugh at a Tory who'd made a silly mistake. He ki kindly checked that I really wanted to be there, and I did, because I think it was against the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. You, you're, Diane Abbott used to say the same to me, but for different reasons. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, uh, but but no, Dicey um, understands the sovereignty of Parliament and he develops the phrase, the rule of law, that comes from Dicey. And these are principles that are very valuable to our understanding of how we are governed. And he develops a theory of referendums on the basis that the House of Lords no longer works, something that could be accurately said in the reign of Queen Victoria and can be accurately said in the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, that... 
it's an idea of how you make your constitution function so that it reflects what people say, but it doesn't get changed necessarily too quickly, and that you have an ultimate authority, which is Parliament acting on behalf of the people. And you have the rule of law, which are the conventions that we've historically operated within. And I think that's tremendously important. How we are governed is very important, and Dicey is the first person to set it out with that level of clarity. And he's held in 1892 promoting the referendum as a way to guard the rights of the nation against the usurpation of national authority by any party which happens to have a majority. So what is it that you're taking away from this constitutional thinker you admire that informs your politics now about the referendum, about what to do next, and what is now going to happen? Well, when when you've had a referendum, I think you should clearly implement the result. That, I think, is a key point, that referendums are there with an authority. They are not there uh, just for the fun of it, to give people something to do on a Thursday in June. Um, And that should be followed through. His view of the referendum and the Lords was he'd come to the conclusion that the Lords was simply too Tory and therefore would block all uh, liberal legislation, and that therefore you needed something other than a House of Lords that was going to be able to do that, and that a referendum could answer problems that the politicians couldn't answer for themselves. And actually, I think that was true with leaving the European Union, that the politicians couldn't come up with an answer. We've had that referendum. It should now be implemented. A parliament should get on and implement it. But does Dicey, or perhaps I'll put it to you then, back to Tristan, does Dicey help us much further when you end up in a logjam, when the referendum result is close, as you would concede that it was, the way forward is perhaps not as simple as as saying you have a result, now get on with it. When Parliament really cannot decide what kind of of Brexit it would like to deliver and when the kind of Brexit that you stand for in the European uh, Reform Group is not shared even by other so-called soft Brexiteers, the picture you must concede is not as clear as you might have suggested by bringing uh, Dicey in as your uh, oh, I, I helmsman here. I think Dicey would have recognised in these circumstances we would have had to have had another general election and have a parliament that can deliver one way or another and that that's the problem. The logjam is that this parliament carries on even though the government does not command a majority in parliament for its routine business. So you're really in favour of general election, you and Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, no, I'm, as I'm uh, looking at the opinion polls, the last thing I want is a general election. Um, <laughs> but constitutionally, it, it would be uh, a, a way of getting out of the situation, which is what I'm sure Dicey would be proposing if he were here. Let's look forward and see how your, your views of what happens next are informed by the past and by your interpretation of, of the past. The Guardian's reviewer said that this, your book, was biography as manifesto. The real purpose, Catherine Hughes said, the Victorians, in, in your version, is to reflect Rhys Mogg back to himself at twice his natural size. Ouch. Well, it's a bit rude, but it's also basically saying that this is part of a, of a manifesto to to, to big yourself up or to make your cause seem more right than others. That possibly plays into the future of the Conservative Party uh, and the upcoming vacancy, which I think is now widely conceded to, to exist around the leadership. Is that right? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's particularly rude by the sounds of the Guardian. If that's the rudest they can get, that's a bit pathetic. I, they try harder. <laughs> um, but... It, Everyone writes books to insist that they're right. You don't write a book to say I've got everything hopelessly wrong, do you? That would be a very odd way of writing a book. I, I'm, I'm puzzled by this as a mode of criticism. Um, but yes, of course, the book and the characters 
fit in with my view of the world. Otherwise, it would have been somebody else's book written by somebody else with other characters. I don't think this is particularly uh, a statement of anything other than the obvious. It's a Victorian thing to do, to write a so-called manifesto book, isn't it? Yes, but, I mean, it's, you know... I. I, th- I think in, in, in the latter half of the 20th century, you know, Kennedy's profiles in, in Courage, Studies in Courage, which was, you know, yes. uh, a sort of more contemporary version uh, of heroism, exactly. It's a, it's, it is a, a well-trodden pathway uh, about sort of reflecting uh, the past through, through the present and, and bringing out the themes you wish, which is why, for example, it's it, one, of, one of the, I think, um, omissions... Um, from, from, from my perspective, from a sort of, although I'm an independent civil servant now, from my perspective would be um, the early Joseph Chamberlain um, and the tradition of municipal socialism in, in, in Victorian Britain. Because one of the great achievements of the latter half of the 19th century was taking a country which was completely traumatised, in a sense, through the effects of industrialization. We shouldn't and, and again, an omission here is the sort of absence of the understanding of the poverty which, which then emerged through the Industrial Revolution. Life expectancy at birth in Glasgow and Liverpool in the 1830s is the lowest since the Black Death. It is a reversion of 150 years of progress because just of the enormity of the impact of industrialization. And then during the second half of the 19th century, really through the municipal socialist tradition, the civic gospel, London, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, these cities become great places because of the intervention uh, of political leaders. And in this book, we hear a lot about one of the, the merits of the British Constitution is the private property system. Well, actually, what civic leaders did was to take on private property uh, and say, actually, there's a broader public good about water quality, about ownership of utilities, gas and water, about public housing, about public education, uh, about public health. And to cut to the chase, you think that's underrepresented? Oh, hugely. But I mean, that's not kind of surprising. But I think think it's a a story of the 19th century which which people, perhaps from a different political trajectory, will find solace in. Okay, but I'll, I'll, I'll answer that in a number of ways. First of all, Joseph Chamberlain was something I th- somebody I thought seriously about putting in, um, uh, and he and Lord Salisbury were both people who could easily be in a book of this kind. Secondly, in the chapters on both Disraeli and on Palmerston, mm. Palmerston, very interestingly, in his period as Home Secretary, much forgotten because everyone thinks of him as Don Pacifico affair and Foreign Secretary and all of that. But actually, as Home Secretary, he was mobbed up as being the Minister for Sewage because he was doing exactly this. And the, one of the great contributions of Disraeli is public health. And Disraeli's Public Health Act is the basis for public health in the United Kingdom until the 1930s. And that, that is in there. And I didn't go into the municipal um, drains. Uh, I went to the national drains, so to speak. And I think, they are, I think it is very important. And some of the most important work of Disraeli is in ensuring, and he puts it as the condition of the people, that the condition of the people gets better, and the condition of the people gets better because they have clean water, and Palmerston was involved in that too. I can't resist a word about it. I want to get you back to, to, to Brexit. Both of you seem to have a huge desire to skitter off from Brexit into drains. We wanted to talk about the Victorians. <laughs> you are, you are, we're, 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 going to, we're going to talk about the 
breaks it down the Victorians. That, that's one of those Radio 1 links. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I really can't resist the, the, the line on, on Disraeli, which I think comes quite early in your book. And you, you talk about his successful 28-year campaign to make the Conservatives electable again. Yeah. Is that what it's going to take? <laughs> Um, oh, it's very interesting that, that the major split in the party can lead to a very long time before you get back into office. And the Labour Party, after 1979, took 18 years. It took Disraeli and the Conservatives 28 years to get back to majority government after the split over the Corn Laws. They had p- brief periods of minority government, but no majority government for 28 years. And does that not worry you, then, when you think, and I do think this is justifiable, like, when you look at that history and that split after the, the Corn Laws, that you could be looking at that now in a party that you hold very dear... And to, to which you've devoted your political life. Uh, yes, of course it does. I mean, I, th- I think the position for the Conservative Party at the moment is extraordinarily risky, uh, that we have ignored our voters, and we haven't recognised that things changed, that, it's for, that the collapse in the Conservatives' poll rating comes after we don't leave on the 29th of March, after the Prime Minister said over 100 times that we will leave on the 29th of March. And then we have the local elections where we lose far more seats than anyone had expected, and we lose them with huge swings. We go from holding seats with two-thirds of the vote to having them lost by two-thirds of the vote against us. And the immediate reaction of the government is to do a stitch-up with the Labour Party. It's sort of politics as normal. Let's ignore what the voters have said. We'll just stitch things up in a back room and we'll sort it all out. And today is the same. What the Prime Minister's come out with today is let's um, put a sticking plaster on, pretend it's all fine. So we and, might just very quickly just, just pause to say this is today that Theresa May has, has uh, given a statement in Downing Street absolutely, saying she's going to bring forward the withdrawal agreement for the fourth time and yeah. the, the salient difference, as I understand it, and you might tell me if anything else stands yeah. out to you, is that she would be prepared to, to offer a, referendum. a confirmatory yeah, yeah. vote or referendum, yeah, if, yeah. if that you agree that that's what it is, if the deal gets through. Now, does that to you materially change anything? You've, you've talked about that, this feeling that there's a disruption here that is not being healed. Why is this not an offer? Well, I think it plays in completely to the hands of the Brexit party. They're saying people voted to leave, let's leave. And the Prime Minister is saying let's fiddle around again and have a customs union, let's have the single market de facto, oh, and let's have another referendum to see if people have changed their minds. It's all completely hopeless. It's not delivering. It's undelivering. It's worse than the proposal she had before. But you said earlier that you did think the DICA added something with his this theory that, that referendums were there for a purpose in the Constitution. Well, we, Why would you not think that this was possibly another way to apply that? Because we've had the referendum, and the referendum has to be implemented before you can have another one. That's not in Dicey, though. You just made that up. No, no. <laughs> Dicey doesn't cover every aspect. <laughs> Dicey... Dicey advocates the referendum, but bear in mind there is no referendum in his lifetime. He does not opine authoritatively on the circumstances where you might have a second or confirmatory referendum when you've already had the first. I don't imagine he thought that such a thing would arise. I should probably go even-handedly over to Tristram on this. Save your blushes politically. Is this the period that you see parallels in the 19th century? What would your, you know, what would your advice be? And this is purely as a historian, obviously not as a, a, a former Labour figure, for getting out of the mess. I think, I mean, to, to go back to the, the point about the referenda and the constitution, of, you know, the, the nature of the British constitution is that it is unwritten. Uh, and so the notion that Dicey didn't say X in the late 19th century means you can't 
think about it now doesn't doesn't necessarily um, seem to follow for me. And I think we, we we do see a quagmire in Parliament. And I think you're Jacob, you're absolutely right. On the one hand, the pathway through that in the old days would have been a general election. Um, and in in another way, is what some are suggesting is 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 a referendum. I think what we're also seeing, and you might like this as well, although she she was far more, you know, the, Queen Victoria would have cut through this. Uh, those telegrams to Gladstone were just the tip of the iceberg uh, in terms of she would have uh, had a sort of pretty firm hand on the tiller uh, in the mid-19th century <laughs> with this. I'm not suggesting uh, the current sovereign should necessarily cut through it. Um, and it was also interesting to note that the comment about Michael Gove, we just had this revelation from a retiring German uh, diplomat uh, that uh, the Queen in 19, what was it, 1992, uh, at, at a lunch with the German diplomats, was reflecting that Britain's future might lie in Europe. Um, she has all the heritage, so you could understand. You, you, don't, see a, you don't see a role for the present sovereign in, in resolving the crisis. I mean, some people have spoken about the idea of kind of proroguing Parliament and basically upping it a notch, uh, yes. uh, handing it, it, it over to uh, pr- pr- Queen pr- Victoria's descendant. Proroguing Parliament would be a routine exercise of governmental power. It doesn't involve the Queen any more than appointing Penny Morden to replace Gavin Williamson involved the Queen. It is done in the Queen's that name. That was a major constitutional moment. I, I thought you'd say that. Um, and and, and th- th- this gets confused. People say it would involve the Queen. Everything the government does involves the Queen. It is simply done on the advice of the Prime Minister. So... Do I think the Queen should be saying to Mrs May in the weekly audience, um, I'd do it differently if I were you. I I, I, I think that the the, the Queen is is entitled to encourage and and to warn and to be consulted. But one of the interesting things about Queen Victoria, one of the successes of Queen Victoria, and again I'm I'm quoting Vernon Bogdaner in this, but I, I think he's absolutely right, is that our constitutional monarchy is pretty much unchanged from Victoria. Admittedly, Victoria wrote um, letters with more underlinings to her prime ministers than the Queen probably does, and the prime ministers were more regularly in attendance on the Queen, but actually the basic operation of the constitution would be pretty recognisable to Victoria. She might have fewer arguments over um, the appointment of bishops uh, now than she did with Gladstone. But where do you go yourself in your, your thinking of, of what follows? You, you suggested or seem to suggest that you might throw your support behind Theresa May's deal. Or was that an interpretation? Where do you now seem to suggest you wouldn't support the deal? Just clear that up for oh, us. I was willing to support Mrs May's deal when the alternative was a worse deal being brought forward and not leaving on the 29th of March. We have now not left on the 29th of March and we've had a worse deal brought forward. So there seems absolutely no reason to support the deal this time round. That could be, as we, we don't really know which the swirl of events we're in gets picked up in the future and ends up in the, the book that's written in 100 years. Hence about this by another ambitious conservative, maybe possibly one of the reasonable small children and beyond. But, um, <laughs> well, there are a lot of them, so one of them might. Certainly. You, there's a, certainly a writing factory there. But do, do you worry that that might have been a telling moment, that the moment at which 
Brexiteers, in effect, split about whether they would take a demi-Brexit, a modulated, a soft Brexit, a scrambled Brexit, call it what you will. And the ERG, in which you are the leading figure, decided to go the hard way that that might end up being one of those telling moments which could have unleashed whatever unleashes on the, on the country generally through a Brexit, a very, very difficult period for your party. Well, we could have gone a different way at Meaningful Vote 3. We could have uh, voted it through, we could have got a new leader around that point, and we could then have done something different with that new leader. That didn't happen. The ERG has always been united in its objective, which is leaving the European Union cleanly and clearly uh, and not being a vassal state. And do you uh, now think that will happen, just to crunch that down, do you think they're more likely to be a no-deal Brexit than not? I think we might get Malthouse B, but the alternative is Malthouse B or... Um, uh, the chair has ruled that we're not going to discuss <laughs> Malthouse, Malthouse B. Yeah. Okay, let's Malthouse let's, plus, but, but, plus look, look, minus. I, I, I think we should have a vote, people who know what Malthouse B is. Right, so I didn't want to take you into the weeds. I was really just, just trying. I'm sure there are lots of people in the audience. There are. Yeah. Yeah. lady in the front is very excited. It's my mother. She knows what Malthouse B is. <laughs> It's all we talk about at family conversation. Do you favour the Malt House B or the Lebsom A? <laughs> all round to the Reese Moggs afterwards. Uh, but I, I really feel we should come out of the weeds. And, and also, it's very nearly time that we go to the audience for questions. But I was really trying, somewhat unsuccessfully, to say, are we sure what will have been the decisive moments here? And are, what do we think that we will look back on, particularly with that prism of a longer period that we've got tonight? Uh, and what, where we think it sort of uh, goes, if we feel we know Tristram. I mean, the what? I mean, it, it, this is a book strongly focused on individuals and individual choices made in made in politics. And there's there's no doubt that the the choice made by David Cameron to decide because of fear, our, our sort of reading was of of UKIP and concern about the, the Conservative Party, to, to go for a referendum, then put in place a structure which then allowed what we've seen right across Europe and America, um, uh, forces um, of uh, some levels populism, um, some levels kind of anti-establishment feeling, some levels of anti-politics, whereas in Europe and America that has flowed through traditional political systems and governments have risen and fallen. In the UK, it's been put into a structure of a referendum which in theory then could have long-term consequences for the UK. So when we think about what was the, what was the moment of sort of crisis, was it, uh, you would point to... a reaction or an overreaction or actually um, when you when you look at the actions of, of, of some of kind of uh, Jacob's colleagues Daniel Hannan and others David Cameron falling into a very successfully and brilliantly well-prepared trap um, which then led to the decision to take a referendum from that decision flows everything else and I fear scholars of the future their nuance between meaningful vote three and Malthouse B might be lost uh, in some of the footnotes. <laughs> what a loss to scholarship that would be. Uh, how long do you reckon that Mrs May will remain as Prime Minister, Jacob? And just quickly on that, then what happens? Who is your titan of choice? 
and why to take Britain forward? Um, my success rate at predicting the departure <laughs> of the Prime Minister has not been enormously high, so I might be a little bit cautious on that one. Uh, though I would note that a number of people uh, who thought that last December, when I was encouraging people to vote against her in a vote of no confidence, that that was not a good idea, are now saying to me, if only, if only. Uh, and so I... I I don't see that the Prime Minister can carry on if she loses the next vote on the withdrawal agreement bill. I think if that goes, she really can't carry on. The, the Commons will have shown that it's got no confidence in her. Who is my um, favoured choice? Um, oh, Boris. I think that from a Conservative point of view, and indeed from the country's point of view, we need a really big figure. There are lots of excellent candidates uh, within the Conservative Party who could be good Prime Ministers in ordinary times. This is not ordinary times. I think politics has really changed, and the referendum changed things, and the failure to deliver the referendum has changed the basis of trade between the electorate and politicians, the feeling that Parliament has set its face against the people, and we need somebody who can bring that back together, can deliver the referendum result, can reunite the right of British politics and can make sure that we um, have some confidence in ourselves. Well, but given the 52-40-80-ness, wouldn't uh, Boris need a, a running mate from either the, the Remain or very soft Brexit wing of the party? Who would that be? Who's your dream team? No, I thought that was a good idea a few months ago. And I now think that would be absolutely disastrous. I think it would lose Boris the election if he tried that because it seems to me that people are fed up with the business-as-usual political stitch-ups. So the it kind of Amber Rudd, Boris Johnson... I think the Amber idea really doesn't work no. now. I think it would be entirely counterproductive. You may remember, you're bound to know, that in 1997, John Redwood tried teaming up with Kenneth Clark, and it was an absolute disaster, because everybody knew they didn't agree with anything on the price of eggs, let alone on how the country should be governed. And I, 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 I don't think Bamber would work... Not least because um, Amber Rudd seems to have set up a group which is the Anybody But Boris group. So I, I think the chance of that becoming the, the, this great unifying effort is uh, slim. I think it's time we went to the audience. I hope you've heard lots to stimulate tonight, uh, delight and occasionally infuriate you and we'd love to have some questions. Hello. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Isaac and I'm 17. And my question is, directed mainly at um, Mr. Rees-Mogg. And is your fight for Brexit really a desire for a return to the injustice of the Dickensian or Victorian Britain, a world of poverty, exploitation and oppression? And is this a reflection of your desire to drag Britain back to a society of colonial attitudes? No. <laughs> That's a self-standing question. Do you want to add anything on that? No, that's fine. I'll take the next question. My question's a bit more light, and to both of the panellists, uh, you obviously both have a great passion for the Victorian era. Is there a specific like, anecdote or memory where you remember, like, really, this passion was sparked? Um, I guess we'd all love to hear that. Yes, let's, let's take those great questions. Thank you. Uh, Justin, why don't you go first? Um, I read Asa Briggs's Victorian Cities, um, which is one of the most brilliant accounts uh, of what I spoke about earlier, the transformation um, of the great cities of the Midlands and the North in the latter half of the 19th century. Uh, and when you read that 
Birmingham modelled itself on Venice and Manchester modelled itself on Florence um, and that enormous sense of civic pride which then flowed through to the architecture and ambition uh, of the cities. That what sort of uh, sparked um, my, my thinking. And I would say Victoria, there's a, there's a kind of wonder and an enormity in, in, in Victoria and the great thing of this anniversary, this bicentenary, the 200th birth of both Victoria and Albert, they were the same age, one doesn't always uh, think that, um, is that the great um, Elizabeth Longford biography of Queen Victoria is being reissued um, this summer. And she was, a, she was a kind of tortured soul, she was an anxious soul, she was a passionate soul, she was a a, a, a wife, she was a mother, to, she, she was so exhausted by having all these children, she was infuriated. It. Um, and then she, she also had this very strong belief in, in Britain's role in the world um, and the empire. And the reason why she loved Dizzy so much, because she loved being empress, being empress uh, of, uh, of India for her. So she had, I, I think, I think, I think Victoria was important to the Victorian age, and not every monarch, not every Hanoverian was important to the Georgian age. Jacob. Thank you. Well, I'll ask the, answer the anecdote one first, because um, uh, actually sharing a birthday with Queen Victoria meant I always was interested in her, and had I been a girl, I would have been called Victoria. Um, I wasn't. Um, uh, but uh, I, my father gave me, um, which he got at Bonhams, a little file of the oil used at Queen Victoria's coronation when I was a schoolboy. Oh, so they're I still... not still selling that, are they? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, actually, I've also, I, I also have a piece of the True Cross, but never oh, yeah. mind. That's, um, I do, I do. But never mind. Bonhams. Um, <laughs> and and I, I was frightfully excited by this. I was still a schoolboy at the time, and I went back to school, and people said, what did you get for Christmas? And I said, well, I got given um, the anointing oil from Queen Victoria's coronation and all my friends who'd been given hi-fis and things like that I thought that was frightfully boring but I thought it was the most exciting thing and it is still it's one of the things I would certainly get out of the house uh, after the children and wife in the event of fire um, uh, um, and nanny of course um, uh, but to, to come to come to the issue of uh, Queen Victoria and her, her age I think she is tremendously important I think she's important because she does understand popular feeling and she's a good way of putting that to some of her prime ministers who don't. And she is good in the role as mother of the empire. She genuinely thinks that all her subjects are equal. And she has no racial prejudice. And that's not true of many Victorians. In that sense, she's a very good person, a remarkably modern person. I mean, she thinks they're all subject to her and that she's absolutely, you know, the top banana. But um, she does have a fundamental view of the equality of all her subjects, which I think is important and actually important in how the empire uh, evolves and how we look back on it. Let's go uh, back, back round, if we could, the gentleman at microphone three. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm, I'm Tony Greenway. Now, the Victorian era gave rise to great uh, investments and rapid expansion in areas such as public education, infrastructure like sewers and science and technology and driven by Christian and other altruistic principles. But since 2010, you and your party have pursued an entirely fruitless policy of austerity, which has undeniably cut funds to education, NHS, and other infrastructure. And Brexit will certainly deny us large quantities of funds to science and technology. So what are your firm plans to take and follow the Victorian example of higher investment in those areas, considering we are such a wealthy economy. 
Thank, thank you. I think that's what you call a, a soft intro with a, <laughs> a steely punch at the end of it, wasn't it? Well, if we'd learned from the Victorians, they did not consistently run a budget deficit. They made the budget balance. It's one of the great contributions of Gladstone, actually, who is a very successful Chancellor of the Exchequer, much better Chancellor than he uh, was Prime Minister, where most of what he wanted to do didn't actually happen. Uh, but in terms of government expenditure, expenditure on the health service was ring-fenced. It has gone up in real terms every year since 2010, but cuts had to be made. We were spending £150 billion a year more than we were taking in tax revenue. So what else were we going to do? Bankrupt the country? Well, that wouldn't have been a very Victorian lesson to learn, nor would it have been sensible in the 21st century. So you have to cut your coat uh, according to your cloth, and science investment and so on we are a net contributor to the EU budget. We can carry on with all the expenditures of that kind that we have once we've left without any change um, in uh, the funding that is provided to universities, science, etc. I would also caveat confusing public expenditure and investment. Some public expenditure may be investment, but all public expenditure is not uh, investment. Just, just one second, just a, a quick point on, on expenditure and, and austerity. You've actually written the introduction to a new pamphlet, policy exchange pamphlet, which I think calls for an increase in spending on, on social care, am I right? It does, yes. So does that uh, mean that you feel austerity really should now be more decisively ended? No, it's all about how you spend the money that you've got. And it seems to me that it is a great unfairness... Uh, that if you have certain long-term conditions, they're deemed to be health, and if you have certain other long-term conditions, they are deemed to be social care. One of them, the state pays everything, the other, the state pays nothing, uh, and that this wipes out people's savings uh, and leaves them entirely um, dependent, ultimately, uh, on, on, on the state. And that if you can provide the choice that people are currently getting, but with the backup of the state, with a modicum... You need more money to do it, then. No, you do. You need about £11 billion a year. There's some modest savings from freeing up hospital beds that are currently used from social care. But with all these you decisions... You just committed the next uh, Tory leader to £11 billion a no, year. No, no. <laughs> just, just asking. Just so, yes, I know. This is one of those things that we all try. And, and, and I, look, we're shameless about it. All politicians do it. Any Labour politician says we should have this... Uh, spending, immediately you add it all up and say they're going to spend an extra £100 billion. Uh, This is one thought in one particular area. OK. Uh, I mean, there's I, two areas. I, 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 I'm, I'm interested to hear what uh, Jacob says, and I shall read it, because I think one of the great failures uh, of British politics, and I was part of this when I was a member of Parliament, was an inability to, to sort out social care spending. And there was almost a political deal done, and it fell to electoral politics and campaigns about death taxes and all the rest of it. And I thought that was kind of... It was the, it was the worst element uh, of actually a public policy solution we all know everyone needs to get to. Can uh, we just go quickly to austerity and identity? Aus just don't get another three questions in, I think. Austerity, austerity. I think the... I mean, I, I, I work in the public sector. The V&A, as a museum, has £700,000 less per year from the state uh, because of reductions um, in public funding. I think what's interesting is that um, the, the skewer on which the Victorian identity might lie is that the, would the Victorians have done High Speed 2? Big, bold, transformational project for which I fear Boris Johnson will pull the plug on. Uh, were he to become uh, Prime Minister. Um, and on identity, I think what's so interesting about the 19th century is a much stronger sense of regional and civic 
identity alongside national, but also religious identity. Religious identity, nonconformist, Catholic, Anglican, so important to a sense of identity in those periods. I think we should get some more questions in. Hello. Uh, hi, um, I'm Evelyn, and um, it's a question coming... I'm a historian of 19th century gender and emotion. Um, so it's a bit of... Um, it's a question about um, the way that masculinity is being portrayed through looking at this... You know, the Victorians who made Britain, you know, you see kind of confidence and moral rectitude and this, like, dedication to their cause, whereas I see kind of um, a level of arrogance that is often seated in um, a deep-seated anxiety, you know, about, about genuinely quite worried men and women about how society is changing. And what your book is glorifying from what we hear is quite a toxic masculinity that doesn't address those very different emotions the Victorians felt. They weren't necessarily as confident as you portray them, and I'm wondering whether you see there is an issue with that. So the last point was whether... Was whether you see an issue with portraying them issue with, as yeah, confident yeah. when they weren't that confident. Well, the issue with that, as I'm sure is a phrase, is, doesn't occur in your book, but I, I, we got, I've got the question. Thank you very much. It's a good, good challenge. In terms of um, the masculinity of uh, the Victorians and their inner uncertainty, that's certainly true. It's very interesting. Napier is often writing in his diary about uh, his concern about what he's doing. So I do accept the point that people who can appear outwardly confident uh, may be inwardly more troubled than their public acts show. But I think a confidence in the public sphere is very beneficial. So um, am I an advocate of the stiff upper lip? Yes, I probably am. And I think that this is expressed in the heroes of the book. But you're not an advocate of toxic masculinity, is the charge. No, I'm not an advocate of toxic masculinity, probably because I don't know what it means. <laughs> so really thank you, uh, audience, for, for coming tonight to Intelligence Squared and to Penguin Live. You can collect signed copies of the Victorians in the foyer. There are also copies on sale. But please do give an even bigger round of applause. Jacob Rees-Mogg, and Chris And our wonderful chairman. <laughs> what are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>